We are coming to our last study on the book of Esther today. And uh, I'm sure it's been a great story. A story with a lot of twists and turns. Uh, a story which has uh, a lot of twists and turns. A story which uh, has a lot of you know, plot within a plot. You would never think you know, that such an astonishing drama is in the Bible. But uh, you must also remember, storytelling doesn't just tell us you know, something about incidents, but a good storyteller also takes the participants into the story so that they feel a part of that. And uh, my prayer is that as we have been going through this book, we have been able to identify different situations in our own lives, situations that we have gone through, maybe individuals or maybe ourselves, we would see ourselves in some of those characters and we will understand and see the unseen hand of God at work in our lives. If that has happened, then I would say, yes, you know, the study has been worthwhile in understanding how we can fit into what God's plan is for our lives. Because the Bible is not just a book, remember. The Bible is not just a storybook. The Bible is history, yes but primarily it is about God's involvement with mankind. And as we have gone through this uh, in our book, my prayer is that we would be able to understand this truth and make sure that even after we have finished this study, we will continue to remember this truth in our lives. Let me start this uh, in our study with an illustration which Vance Havna mentions. He speaks about uh, a little town in Alabama where the major livelihood was raising cotton. And uh, one year, it appeared as if there would be a bumper crop. But there was a beetle which fed on cotton buds and flowers, a beetle by the name of Ball Weevil, which invaded, devastated the crop, and destroyed the entire economy of that town. Now think for a moment, here's the entire economy of that town gone because they were expecting a good cotton crop that year. Now what did the farmers do? Did they give up? Did they question God? Did they say, let's uh, now forget about this crop? What the farmers did was they were determined not to sit back. Instead, what they did was they said, let's plant some other crops. And one man decided to plant peanuts instead. And this beetle doesn't like peanuts at all. Another farmer decided to you know, put another crop. And as a result, different, different crops you know, were planted that particular year. And there was long, long before, you know, before long, a huge bumper crop of different, different types of uh, you know, uh, crops you know, began to yield you know, its fruit. So what happened to that economy? A beetle which tried to destroy the economy, these guys decided to revert back and decided to do something through that. And as a result, the economy was restored. And you know, the town later on came to be called as Enterprise. If you Google, you will still find this place called Enterprise, Alabama. And the interesting part is that they erected a monument to this beetle ball beevil. Go on Google and see this image in the city square of a lady holding up this beetle. 
Now, why did they do that? They did this to recognize that things were bad, but they didn't allow those bad things to remain. In the book of Esther, we recognize this, of how in spite of all the opposition, they rose up, Mordecai and Esther rose up and trusted God for seemingly impossible things. And as a result, everything was changed for the Jews. I wonder if during this period of uh, the lockdown, during this period of the virus, you have been having questions about why has all these things happened? Maybe God has sent these things to jolt us out of our grooves. Maybe the best thing that could have happened is for you to stop and think and say, hey, life is not over. There are more important things in life that you have been depending upon or trusting on on all these years that, that have gone by. God wants us to see his unseen hand in each of the situations that uh, happen in our lives. And when God takes us through those situations and delivers us, then it's time for celebration. And that's what chapter 9 and chapter 10 is all about. It's to remember to celebrate. Not to remember the bad times that you had, but to remember how God delivered us, of how God was the one who was sovereign, of how God took us through to see his hand at work in our lives each day. So let's get through the passage from verse 17 onwards and learn some of these principles of remembering to celebrate. In verse 17 and 18, we find two celebrations take place. Verse 17, this was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar. On the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. And then on verses 18 and 19, it says, But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th day of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural area who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food one to another. If you notice here, there are two days that are mentioned, one for the countryside and one for the city. But in both these places, there were two things that were emphasized. The first thing that I want you to look at is in verse 17, where it says they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. They rested. The importance of rest after work. The importance of rest after the battle has been won to look back with gratefulness at what God has given to us. On a physical level, God gives us rest when we have a good night's sleep. I wonder if we are really in charge of an creation, whether we would have created the need for sleep. Because a lot of people think, hey, rest is not really important. There are so many things to do in our lives. And as a result, they try and cut off that time of sleep so that more time is available to do different things. But God wisely wants us to learn how weak we are, how our bodies require that rest. And God gives that rest. And that's a simple principle in scripture. God is the one who sets the model for work. And the model for work is there is work. After that, there has to be rest. In the creation, we find this. Six days of creation, seventh day, God rested. And this is why in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, 
Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God wants to give us rest. Two types of rest that are mentioned over there. The first rest that we can have is knowing Jesus as our personal savior. Recognizing that it's not my works that saves me, but it's what God has done for me on the cross of Calvary. Even as we go on with life, oftentimes we need to remember that simple truth that we cannot do it on our own. And that's why sometimes the Lord will allow us to take that rest, to take that break as it were, to remember God, to celebrate God, because it's not all about ourselves. It is all about God who has created us and given us the ability to work and to function. So ask yourself, do you recognize this importance of rest in your life? And are you doing it? Maybe during this time you say, I've had a lot of rest. Maybe this is the time that you also need to remember the importance of rest. But more important than all this, recognizing the spiritual rest to recognize that once we decide it is not on our own strength, but it is only God who is able to take us through. That is what rest is all about. And God wants to give his people that rest to recognize, to rest in his presence, to trust in him, to say that he is able to handle whatever situation may come our way. Then you also have the rejoicing that they have, the celebration that they have. They rested, but they also had rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food one to the other. Why do you celebrate? What brings great joy to you that you want to celebrate? Maybe after this lockdown period is over, what is the thing that you would want to go out and do to celebrate? Think about the greatest celebration that we must have. Why do they celebrate over here? They celebrated because God is the one who gave them that deliverance. Before they were saved from this catastrophe that was going to happen, that the edict was passed, that all the Jews had to be killed. Maybe some people didn't even want to leave their homes because of the fear of the unknown. Maybe there were tears of sorrow. Everywhere you looked at them, you would have seen mourning and weeping and sackcloth and ashes. They were all thinking about what should we be doing? What should we be doing? But after they received their salvation, their mourning was turned into dancing. Their mourning was turned into joy. There was laughter and tears of joy everywhere. Ask yourself this evening this question. Do you have the joy of your salvation? Think for a moment to the time that you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Did you celebrate? Did you recognize this important truth that you could not do it on your own, but God in his mercy and grace reached down and touched you and saved you and brought you to himself? To know God in a personal way. Was there rejoicing on that particular day? Look back. Look back, as the song would say, oh, happy day, happy day. Can you look back on that happy day in your life? Has that event happened? It's not just a process that goes on and on. It's an event that must take place, where you have been taken from darkness into light, where we have been taken from a miry clay and put on the rock to stay. Something that God only can do, because that's what salvation is all about. Salvation is not we trying to inch our way to heaven. But salvation primarily is what God does in our internal being 
takes away our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, puts his spirit within us so that we can call him Appa Father. Have you had that experience? And do you have that joy of your salvation? Or have you lost that joy? Have you forgotten that joy? God wants us to celebrate. God wants us to celebrate. That's why we sing. That's why we come together on the Lord's Day every Sunday to come together. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? We meet on the first day of the week because it's a celebration. Celebration of what? That Jesus died on the cross and he rose again so that we too would be able to live with him forever. We look back on the event of the cross and the resurrection on the Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, and then we are grateful to God and we come together with God's people, with God's family, to rejoice together for what God has done for us. Here, the Jews set up this festival of Purim, but for us, every Sunday is a time in which we are celebrating. Remember, when they were celebrating on that particular day, they were not richer in any way, because you remember the Bible tells us they did not take any of the spoils, but they were definitely happier. They were happier because God is the one who had delivered them. God's presence was real to them. They were not more secure in their earthly possessions, but they were more secure in, uh, and certain in their eternal security. To recognize that God is the one who is going to be with us till the very end. They do not have a lot of things to show this great victory physically, if you were to say. But they did have a lot of joy to know that God did not let uh, them down. That God worked through those reverses. And that's the rejoicing that we can do every Sunday morning when we come together or whenever we meet together or in our own quiet times with God, to give thanks to God. Lord, if it were not for your grace, where would I be today? Lord, I thank you that you lifted me up. I thank you that you have saved me. And I'm looking forward for that day when I can see you face to face and physically say thanks to you for all that you have and continue to do in my life. Verses 20 to 22, you find that Mordecai now confirms the festival and gives them some details about how it should be done and what should happen during that festival celebrations. Verse 20 tells us, Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. Mordecai was the one who recorded these events. Now remember, Mordecai did not say, hey, you must have the celebration, and then they started celebrating. No, they had a spontaneous celebration of what God had done for them. And as a result, what Mordecai did was he commended the celebration after that initial spontaneity, after that initial response, and then somewhere before the next anniversary, if you were to say, of that event, he said, he wrote it down and said, this is what you must be doing. This is what you must be doing every year. You have done it this year. God has delivered us. Let's remember that every year. So Mordecai did not command the Jews to celebrate. Instead, he encouraged them to formalize the celebrations that had spontaneously been started. And he gives some prescriptions. Verse 21 says he obliged them to celebrate the 14th day of the month, Adar, and the 15th day of the same month, 
annually. So he put these two dates into place. He says every year, these are the dates that you must set aside for celebration. Then he gave a prescription in verse 22. He says, because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. It was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing, sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So he said, this is what you guys should be doing. We have turned from sorrow to rejoicing. So as a result, let your sorrow be turned into rejoicing by feasting and rejoicing. And not just thinking about yourself. Send portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And gifts to the poor. So what was Mordecai's prescription? He says, in your joy, don't forget to pay attention to those who are around you, who do not have what you have. And as a result, they may be feeling sad. Your responsibility is to share that joy with others around you. Pay attention to them. And that's what we must also do. Yes, we are thankful to God that God has saved us. It is purely by his grace. But we are not just satisfied with that and saying, okay, this is mine. I don't want to share it. We should be sharing that joy with those around us who do not know the Lord so that they too can be a part of that joy. What's the life application over here? When you are enjoying life and having a good time, spread the joy around. Spread the joy around. God has given us the joy, the joy which will never be taken away, a peace, peace that can never be taken for that type of joy and peace. It is our responsibility to share that with others around us so that they too could benefit from it. So verses 23 to 32, we give an overall view of all that happened to the Jews during this period and why the festival of Purim should be celebrated and what name should we give to this festival. Verse 23 tells us, thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. They had started to celebrate and then Mordecai comes along and then gives them the details of what they should be doing. Verse 23 speaks about what had happened, about how Haman the Agakite had schemed to, against the Jews to destroy them and had asked the poor, that is the lot, to disturb and to destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that the specific scheme that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them. So he gives back a narration. Why are we celebrating this festival? It is for this particular purpose. What shall we call this festival? Let's call it Purim. Why Purim? Because the lot was cast. You know? Pur means lot. Okay? Purim is the plural form. So it is like calling a festival dice. Now, why would you call a festival a dice? You know? Because your focus is, hey, look here, the dice was cast. But finally, God is the one who decided. Haman thought that his gods, his stars will decide the date. But it is God who decided. So it's a celebration. It's a reminder to the people of what God did. That is what Purim is all about. And that is why they have been asked to celebrate this festival every year. 
This book of Esther is read every year during this festival time. And when they read this book, the congregation shouts and boos and hisses and stamp their feet and rattle noisemakers whenever Haman's name is mentioned. Every time Haman's name comes in that book, when they are reading it, these individuals who are there at the, at the meeting would boo and hiss and shout and you know, make all those noises. Why? They want to blot out the name of Haman. It's a declaration from their side about what God has done for them. Now, Purim is also preceded by the fast of Easter, uh, of Esther. It was a one-day fast to commemorate the three-day fast that was recorded. So that's how they celebrate it today. Two days of the Purim, before that, there's the one day of the fast to think back on what God had done for them. Now, remember in the Old Testament times, you know, remembering, you know, was not a big deal because God asked them to set up different memorials constantly to remind them of what God had done for them. Remember after a military victory, there was a pile of rocks that was you know, uh, put together as a memorial to say, Ebenezer, God has led us thus far. God set up the festival of tabernacles to remember their time in the wilderness when they were living in tents remembering what God had done for them. Even when they were in the wilderness, God was with them. The Passover was a remembrance of how the angel of death had passed them over when they were in Egypt. And even once in 50 years, you know, after every 49th year, the 50th year was called as the year of Jubilee, where there was an off that was given and celebrated. Remember, Old Testament times, they definitely set up holy days of remembrance. And this is something that we must do in our lives. A life application over here would be set up a holy day of remembrance to remember what God has done. Maybe it could be the day that you came to know the Lord, what God had done for you. Maybe there was a, you know, a sickness that you came through and God healed you, delivered you. Maybe there was a, a situation in which you are in a tight corner. And you wondered, how would you ever come out of it? You trusted in God and God delivered you. Ask yourself, even this uh, evening, do you set up any of that dates to remember what God has done? Remember, if we don't set up those days of remembrance, it's easy to forget, isn't it? If the Jews had not set up this festival of Purim, even now today, they would not remember what God had done for them many years ago. But because of that festival that is set up, they do remember. So let me encourage you, set up, you know, days of remembrance, milestones in your life. Like when we did right in the first you know, session, split up your life into you know, three sections, you know, 10, 10, 10, if you are in 30 years of age, you know, whatever period, set it up into three sections of your life and ask yourself, what is the major event that happened at that time where God helped you, where God delivered you, where you saw the unseen hand of God at work? And ask yourself, right now in this last session, have you set up any remembrance day for that? Have you set up any memorial for that? Do you spend time thanking God on those days for what God has done? This would help us to focus our attention on God. Not to focus our attention on the problem that we faced at that time, but to focus our attention on the God who delivered us out of that problem. 
Verse 27 speaks about how the celebration had to be permanent. Verse 27 says, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and their descendants and for all those who aligned themselves with them so that they will not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. They established it and made it a custom for themselves. They made it a custom for themselves. Why did they do that? They did this so that they do not forget. As I told you, if you don't set up those days of remembrance, it's easy to forget those days. Why does the joy of salvation fade from our lives? I asked you earlier, do you celebrate the time that you came to know the Lord? And do you still have the joy of salvation today? What happens in Psalm 51 and verse 12? David cries out to God and says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When is joy lost? When there is sin in our lives. When we are no longer as close to God as we were once upon a time. When there's a blockage that has come in. Or when we have forgotten about what God has done in our lives and we are so busy doing our own thing that we cease, we stop to thank God for what God has done for us. Remember the Israelites when they crossed the Jordan River? They didn't leave the spot immediately. According to Joshua chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, God told them to take 12 stones and build a memorial so that future generations would remember the miraculous deliverance of the Lord. Before Jesus left the earth, what did he do? He gave instructions and said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we come together at the Lord's table uh, when we meet together to give thanks to God, to remember what he has done. If we don't participate, if that is not a part of our lives, chances are we will forget. But we also need to be careful that every time we participate in that remembrance, it does not just become an activity in, in itself. We must remember the purpose. And the Bible very clearly tells us the purpose is to remember his death and to remember his coming. Each time we break bread together, we are giving thanks to God. We are remembering what God has done for us. And we are also remembering the promise that he has given to us that he will come back to take us to be with him. Now, one of the reasons why we don't celebrate is also because we settle for cheap substitutes. C.S. Lewis gives this illustration about a little boy playing in a mud puddle in a slum area. And when he was offered a trip to the beach, he refused. He was very happy with just his little mud puddle. Mud puddle. Why? Because that was a substitute for him. He has never seen the real thing. He has never seen the big ocean. So what he thought was, if I give this up, then I won't have anything whatsoever. Ask yourself, what are some of the cheap substitutes that you have put in place instead of knowing God in a personal way? Religion can become a substitute, isn't it? The routine things that we do in our religion can become a substitute, which steals us, which robs us of the joy that we must have to celebrate the presence of God in our lives. So life application over here, do not allow the joy of your salvation to fade. How do you do that? Set up the time of remembrance. Set up those events. Set up those memorials. And every time we have some of these things which the Lord himself has asked us to do, 
Make sure that it's not just a sense of routine activity that you're doing it, but remember the purpose for which it is done. As the Bible tells us to come together and uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves to come together. Why? So that we can exhort one another. Coming to church is not just so that we can come and sit in the pews and go, but it is to build one another up, exhort one another, encourage one another, receive and to give that encouragement. Also in verse 28, we find that the celebration was for future generations. Verse 28 says, So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation and every family so that the memory does not fade from the descendants. This generation will go up, next generation will come. They were not there at that time. So how do they remember that? They remember it because this memorial has been set up okay just as much as the passover memorial was set up so even today when the jews remember they think about how god delivered them from egypt when purim is set up they remember how god delivered them through and uh, through the danger that was there because of haman's edict ask yourself have you set up any memorials in your life or in the life of your family setting up a memorial counters a natural tendency to forget. Monuments and memorials and remembrance days are appropriate in our lives. This is not just to look back with grievance. This is not to look back to feel sorry that this happened on that particular day, but to remember with gratefulness of how God delivered us through those times. They help us to turn tragedies into triumphs. Sometimes we can simply stand in quiet reflection and then move on. We, can, we must build upon the past failures and the triumphs because facing the future helps us to you know, look back and say, this is what God has done for us in the past. He is able to do much more in the future as well. We have to be careful that we don't live in the past. Sometimes we can set up those memorials and look back only and say, those were the days, those were the days. But Memorials are there to set up to remember if God has helped us, delivered us during those times, when we look into the future, we can be assured that he is also able to do much more than we can ask or think. Charles Swindoll makes this statement where he says, in order to have perspective, we must have monuments and memorials, places to return to and to learn from and talk about and pass on. If we don't, we are destined to live rootless, fast lane lives without much significance and all too seldom celebrations. If we don't set up these memorials, we are destined to live rootless, fast lane lives without much significance and all too seldom celebrations. It's like we'll go through life. Like this is what life is all about. We take it in a, the pinch of salt type of a thing and say that's what life is and keep going. But Setting up memorials helps us to focus our attention on the unseen hand of God in our lives, of how he has helped us. Remembering to celebrate is important. So life application, have you set up any memorials in your life or in the life of your family? Perhaps you had an experience like the ball weevil experience of the people of Alabama. Something came into your life which threatened to destroy you. Maybe a physical ailment, or maybe a situation in your company, or maybe a situation in your marriage. Maybe it is too recent. It is still raw, and you're not able to see God's perspective. 
but do not spend the rest of your life licking on those wounds. Otherwise, you will have only a grim future. Instead, ask yourself the question, what can I learn from it? What can I learn from it? And set up that monument, even as the people of Enterprise Alabama has set up that monument to say, hey, this was the beetle that tried to destroy our crops, but we do not allow that to continue on. Remember, God has changed our D-Day from Destruction Day to Deliverance Day. This is what God did for us on the cross, isn't it? When Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought it is finished now. I've got the victory. But Jesus died and rose again so that we too can have that <laughs> victory. Now in verses 29 to 32, we have the celebration is now also confirmed by Queen Esther. The people celebrated first. Mordecai set up the prescription. Now a letter is also sent out by Queen Esther. Verse 29 says, Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim, and he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of, ah of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times. And then look at the end of that verse, verse 31, with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. Okay. Now, this is what we find here in the letter of uh, Esther. Not only was you know, she affirming what Mordecai has written, but this was the additional thing that was there with fasting and lamentations. So a couple of thoughts over there why this letter was given. One was written to say Queen Esther. It's coming from Queen Esther to say she was a Jew and she is with this. As being a queen, she's still with the people of the Jews. Secondly, also to emphasize that, hey, yes, there's going to be a celebration. But before that, there also has to be a time of fasting and prayer to recognize how this was all happened. So that the focus is not just on the celebration to say we did it. The focus is to remember that it was because we depended on God, because we had a turnaround. This is how our life was before we turned around. But once we turned around, we recognized only God can do it things happen. So the importance of that fasting uh, the day before is set up by Queen Esther in this particular letter. And if you notice in verse 30, it says, you know, namely words of peace and truth. Okay? Peace and truth is speaking about the prosperity that God gives to his people. And this is also speaking about what will happen when Christ himself comes down and, uh, and he will establish his peace, his rule on the earth. So in a prophetic manner, Esther is speaking about, yes, we are having days of peace and truth here. Now God has given us the victory. But we are looking forward to when he comes back again and will establish his kingdom where things would then never be the same and as it is happening here on earth. So, when we meet together, we must remember that as it says in Psalm 126 and verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues were filled with joy, with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. We meet together, we remember the fact that God is the one who has delivered us and we sing songs of joy. We also 
remember to celebrate his goodness in our lives. But we must be careful that it does not become a routine. The difference between routine and ritual is oftentimes not what happens out there, but what happens in here. Ritual is where we do things repeatedly, but they have meaning all the time. We have meaning all the time. A routine, we can keep doing the same thing. We may read the Bible every day. We may pray every day. We may come to church on a Sunday or wherever the church doors are open. But there may be nothing inside of that. There may not be any fulfillment. There may not be any purpose. It may be only the external emphasis of fulfilling that routine. As often happens when we speak about celebrations that we have about Christian festivals, whether it's about Christmas or Easter, we spend so much of our time preparing ourselves for those festivals that the purpose of that oftentimes is lost. It becomes more a routine. And as a result, the whole reason of that celebration is lost. So life application over there is know the difference between routine and ritual. And ask yourself the activities that you're involved in as a Christian. What are the activities that has become a routine and what is actually a ritual? Now, in chapter 10, there are only three verses over there. Okay? But if you notice, there's still a lot of content over there. There's a reversal that is now reconsidered. Now, God has done the reversal, but what happens in the kingdom of Persia? Verse 1 of chapter 10 says, Now King Ahasuerus, laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Normal life has now been restored. What is normal life? Taxes are increased. What is normal life? The word that is used there for tribute in Hebrew means forced labor. In other words, life comes back to normal. Life comes back to the normal routine, the normal grind. Okay? Now, why does chapter 10 with these three verses... Uh, come into the play over here. They serve to put in perspective the great reversal of the book of Esther by showing us how much things have really not really changed much. Do you have that happening in your life? Yes, you have trusted God for your salvation. Yes, you are rejoicing in it. But the next day, things are back. You know, things seem to be, you know, life has not really changed much externally. Oh, you are living in this world. You are expecting things to you know, sort of be much more comfortable or much more smoother. But maybe government increases taxes. Maybe there's more imposition that is put on it. Maybe there's still no peace over that. Then maybe there's no, still no truth over that. We say, God, where are you? But that is what life is all about. The bad news is, is the same king, is the same kingdom, and taxes are going up. But the good news is that God still loves us. He hasn't dealt with all our problems, but he has dealt with our biggest problem. And that's the assurance that we can have. Yes, there will be good news and bad news all the time here in this world. Yes, next day when you open the papers, you may have bad news. You know? But remember the good news is that God is still there with us. How is God with us? That's what the purpose of these three verses are. It says over here, that yes, the taxes were put in, okay? But along with that, we find mention about Mordecai. In verse 2, it says, All the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? 
life is often a complex mixture of fear and sadness on one hand and joy and opportunity on the other. But we must be careful not to let the hard times rob us of the rightful opportunity to celebrate the good times. Here was Ahasuerus who was increasing the taxes. But on the other hand, what is happening? Mordecai was becoming greater and greater. The presence of God with Mordecai was much more real. And that's an application God wants us to understand. Kings rule over nations, but God rules over both of them. And God gives us that hope in the midst of what seems to be a hopeless situation, that God is still in charge. Yes, the nations of this world, yes, the governments of this world may do different, different things. But on the other hand, there is hope because God is the one who is still in charge. And the scripture says over here that they were written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Even though these books have not been found, the fact that they were written over there during the time of the Persian Empire, the craft of writing and keeping records was greatly advanced. So for something to be put down in writing meant that it was valuable and authoritative that it was to be immortalized. So even though we don't have those books, but the fact that people still celebrate Purim today would also be an assurance that this is not just a story. It is actually uh, happening. It is actually an incident that took place in history. So Ahasuerus on one side, Xerxes on one side is increasing taxes. But what happens on the other hand, Mordecai is winning favor more and more, okay? If you in verse 2, says, all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king uh, advanced him. And verse 3, for Mordecai, the Jew, was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So this last verse 3 ends on that good note in contrast. We noticed chapter 1 started out, out with you know, the beauty and the beast, the beast of Ahasuerus, one who said, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the boss, I can do whatever I want to. A king that thought only about himself. But this book ends with verse 3 to speak about Mordecai, who sought the good of all the people and who spoke for the welfare of, his, of the whole nation. Why do the people love Mordecai? Because he led the people very differently. Ahasuerus led through intimidation. Mordecai led through affection. Ahasuerus was a very selfish man. All his decisions were self-serving and self-seeking. Mordecai, on the other hand, was a selfless man. And his decisions were always taken for the well-being of all the people. Ahasuerus wanted to glorify himself. But Mordecai wanted to help the people to glorify God. This is why people feared Ahasuerus, but they loved Mordecai. And that's the assurance that we can have. Yes, there is hope. Why? Because God is the one who is there with us. When he is there with us, when we are willing to recognize we are here not to serve ourselves, but we are here to serve the people around us. Historians tell us that Mordecai had this position for around eight years or so. 
because he was there in that office till 465 BC. And in 465 BC, Ahasuerus was assassinated. And at that particular time, secular history tells us that there was another man in office at that particular time. But remember, Mordecai spoke peace to the people, spoke peace to the people. It's a very interesting word, the word peace. In, other, in Hebrew, it's shalom. And the word shalom is not just peace. It is a, a, a word that speaks about something that is whole. When God created the world, the world was without death. Okay? So shalom is the world without terror, world without fear, world without oppression, world without sin, world, world without suffering. And this is why when God saw his creation, he said it was very good. It was all shalom, all whole. It was peaceful. It was perfect. It was right. It reflected the character of God. But then sin came into the world and it changed everything. Okay? But we have the assurance that right now, yes, we are living in this world. We are saved. We are celebrating. But everything is not shalom, isn't it? Everything is not whole. Everything is not peaceful. There's still a lot of strife and war and terror and you know, fear all around. But we can be sure that one day when the Prince of Peace himself comes and rules and reigns, there will be shalom. There will be wholeness. Okay? So if you notice, Mordecai's concern was to work together. He worked together with uh, Esther. He worked together for the good of the people. And that's the life application. True leadership is more collaborative and less hierarchical. True leadership is more collaborative and less hierarchical. Hierarchy will say, my children, my children, my children, that whole lineage will be the next in command. But true leadership say, hey, let's get the best people together so that we can uh, benefit the largest number of people. So this is a lesson that we can learn from the book of Esther. When God seems absent in your life, Keep trusting him to do what he has promised. If you remain humble and dependent upon him, he will raise you up and bring honor only as he can. Book of Esther, verse 3 of chapter 10, ends with Mordecai. Chapter 1 starts with Ahasuerus. The question for us this evening would be, which character would we represent? A person who thinks only about himself? And then he's assassinated in his own bedroom or a person of Mordecai. Yes, he had his drawbacks in the beginning, but then there was a turnaround. God did his work in his life. And as a result, when God did his work, he didn't take the credit for himself. He made sure he did it for the best of the people around. In the short time that was given to him, only around eight years, he made sure that he made an impact upon the people around him. Let me close with Psalm 103, verses 2 to 5. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 5, where the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. In these verses, we find so many reasons why we can set up memorials. Maybe think of all the benefits that he has given to you. When he has forgiven your sin, think about that as a memorial. When he has healed your disease, think of that as a memorial. Redeemed your life from the pit. You are down and out, but God is the one who pulled you out. 
crowns you with life. Maybe God is the one who gave you promotion in different situations, lifted you up and had compassion upon you when nobody else had compassion and who satisfies your desires with good things. Think of all the goodness of God in our lives, even this evening. Father, we pray that even as you have enabled us to go through this book of Esther during these days, we thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, your helping us to understand principles from this book, to recognize, Lord, even though your name is not mentioned in any of these verses, your unseen hand is there on each and every page. Father, we pray that as we go through life situations, times when we feel you are not there, help us, Lord, not to forget your benefits. And even this evening, you have enabled us to understand how we can do this. We can do this by setting up these memorials that you have asked us to set up. Help us to do this in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.